Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast, Breathe In, Write Out, a podcast for high school, college, and university students about making the most out of academic life. We touch on study skills, student life, career transition, overall well-being, personal development, and other topics that impact young adults. At the end of each podcast, we send our listeners off with a short guided meditation and writing prompt. We hope that through these discussions, meditations, and writing exercises, we can build an open, caring, compassionate community that supports personal growth. I'm Lisa Fow, the founder and CEO of Fow Academic Writing, where we focus on teaching young adults the communication skills necessary to reach their full potential on the page and in life. Get into a cozy spot, grab your pen and notebooks, and let's meet our first guest. This week's episode is part of our Careers in the Arts series, where we talk to young professionals with fine arts or liberal arts degrees who have established themselves in interesting and fulfilling professions. Deciding what to do after university, especially with a degree like a Bachelor of Arts that is often general, does not prepare you for any specific profession, can be daunting. What most students don't realize though, is that your arts degree has provided you with a variety of transferable skills, such as critical thinking, research, organization, and communication that can be applied to a number of different professions. We hope that through these interviews, students will feel less overwhelmed and hopeful about their career options. Today's guest is Megan Keith, the founder of 2020 Arts, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the production of innovative art projects that raise awareness, visibility, and funds for charitable organizations. Megan has a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the Ontario College of Art and Design, as well as a Master of Art in Museum and Gallery Studies from Kingston University in London, England. She has over 10 years of experience in the fine arts industry, including work as a gallery assistant at Lewisburg Contemporary head expedition designer at Quay Crafts and project manager at Pursuit Inc. She is passionate about bringing people together over collective values, beliefs, and passions, amplifying the voices of charities and nonprofits through the most powerful medium she knows, art. Welcome to our podcast, Breathe In, Write Out, Megan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Excited to talk today. Yeah, I've been following you for a while on Instagram, so it's <laughs> nice to actually meet you and talk to you and, and find out more about what inspires all your great posts. Thank you. Yeah, you too. So first, um, you know, we always do a little research on people before we bring them on the podcast. And myself and my work study student, we noticed you seem to have a clear vision, and this may not have been the case, but you seem to have a clear vision of who you are and who you want to be. Um, I think that's something that young adults, especially recent grads, struggle with. How did you know what you wanted to do, and can you tell us about your journey to becoming a founder of a nonprofit? Yeah, absolutely. I have to be honest in saying that I did not always know what I wanted to do or who I wanted to be. I think that that was a journey of self-discovery. It took a lot of patience, consistent practice and time. And 
when I was also a young adult, I think I had a lot of uncertainty about what I wanted to do or who I wanted to be. I felt like I really had to have all the answers and I just didn't have them. So from a young age, I've always been drawn to art in one way or another. If I wasn't doodling in the margins of my notebooks, I was excited about putting together those poster boards um, for class presentations. And I just feel like art sort of fell into my lap. It was the first thing that I ever got good at. And anytime you have the satisfaction of getting good at something, it just fulfills you in a way that nothing else does. So art just happened to be the thing that I first got good at. And so it immediately just drew me in. So yeah, I started drawing. I, I initially wanted to be an art practitioner. I wanted to be a painter or I wanted to be some sort of practicing artist. Um, and being somebody in the alternative rock scene, I suppose, I really wanted to be a tattoo artist. That was the first thing that made sense to me. Oh, cool. Yeah, that didn't really necessarily pan out um, as, I, as I planned because I started my undergraduate degree at OCAD, like you mentioned, in 2009. Right. And I realized that I really enjoyed art history and I really enjoyed theory. And so the academic side of art was something that I never really thought about or explored. I never considered myself to be an intellectual or an academic in any way. Um, And so that was the first time I thought, okay, I'm good at this and I have an interest in it. This just seems to make sense for me. Um, But in the arts world, even in your intro, as you mentioned, it's very difficult to apply a very broad general arts degree sometimes to a specific profession. Um, And that was sort of what I felt uh, with my own experience. Um, my undergrad, and I, I wouldn't speak ill of any of my education. It was all very useful um, in yeah. its own way, introduced me to new people, new concepts, and expanded my critical thinking skills. But it taught me sort of like, I, I never really knew what I wanted to do. So I did my undergraduate okay. degree in criticism and curatorial practice, um, okay. which is curating exhibitions and projects and art writing. And so I graduated okay. that. I was like, I'm going to be a curator. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> and then I took a year off after my undergraduate degree, floating around, figuring out what I wanted to do, worked at the AGO for a little while. And then I applied for my master's degree in London. And that was in museum and gallery studies. So I thought, okay, I'm going to work in museums. You know, art galleries, right. like less, maybe slightly less intellectual. Right. I wasn't as into conceptual art and selling art for money as right. I thought I was. So I thought museums, that's the place to be. So then I did that. Re- yeah. Was there a reason you went to London? I just wanted to have an expanded experience. So London specifically, all of their museums and galleries are completely free. It's a donation-based system. And so the number of art galleries that they had there um, really appealed to me. And just stepping away from my life in a way was also really appealing. It was also a one-year master's degree. So it was a full year, all intensive. It wasn't like a two-year program. And it was the one program that I applied for that I got into. So it just kind of worked out that way. Um, And then when I was there, that was the first time I really found my passion for academia, really started to love what I was doing and started to feel confident 
And then when I came back to Canada, I worked all kinds of different jobs. I worked at galleries, I worked at art advisories, and I was picking up all of these tiny little pieces of experience that never really added up to any one profession. And so I just felt so lost. I was like, oh, okay, I can do social media. (laughs) I can do shipping and logistics. I can do exhibitions. But what is that? That like it was, it right. just didn't get me anywhere. At least I feel felt like it wasn't. Were you doing these different jobs because you wanted to explore different things, or what? What? Why were? You, what kind of put you in these different roles? Um, desperation, maybe. I I just wanted to get a job <laughs> in the arts, and it it didn't matter what it was in the arts. It just needed to be in the arts, and. Right as a curator, like the roles that you can have are either institutional. So you can work at the ROM, the AGO, these established institutions, which are very difficult to get into, or you can work for an art gallery. And almost every art gallery that's commercial in the city is run by the person who founded it. And so there's no room to move up really. It's just, you work as a gallery assistant and that's kind of it. There's no room to grow. So Yeah, I I just, it was just, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was so focused on building my resume and making sure that there was this upwards trajectory. That's what you learn, right? Like you add to your resume, it builds and grows and eventually it'll lead to bigger and better things. Um, And then when I was working at an art advisory firm in 2016, my brother passed away from an overdose and that completely changed my life trajectory and I just felt so completely lost and I realized that I was so miserable in the job that I was working and I didn't really realize it until that had happened in my life it just makes you really like self-reflect and kind of think a little bit more critically about what it is that you're doing and what's important in life um so after that I worked that slightly miserable job for a little bit, but then I started putting together my first exhibition, which was raising awareness for mental health stigma. It was just at an art gallery um, and a portion of all those proceeds were donated to the Toronto Distress Centers. And so that was my first taste of really doing something that I felt so connected to that I really loved. And I could not wait to get home from work every single day because I got to work (laughs) on it, which is something I'd never felt before. I'd never really felt passionate about anything in this way. And so then that just sort of snowballed into like the next project and the next project and the next project. And eventually I quit my full-time job and I started doing it full-time and that's sort of how 2020 wow. came to be. Yeah. And are you, so are you doing this all on your own or did you, I know there's a board, like how many people are involved and how did you kind of connect with those people? So it's, it's basically just me. There's like the, the hopes and dreams of building out the team beyond just me. Um, but it, it started, it started with just me. And then I've had some amazing colleagues and friends along the way, helping me out in various different forms by contacting media or editing a video here or there. Uh, but for the most part, it's just, it's just me. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a struggle, but at the same time, what I mentioned previously about having all of these piecemeal bits of experience actually yeah. have really helped me in the position I'm in now, because now I do social media, I do marketing, I do accounting, I do fundraising, I do project management, I do everything now. And so all of the right. experience that I thought was useless before has actually really helped me where I am now. So yeah. life finds a way. <laughs> oh yeah, I feel the same way. Cause I had, a, I wanted to do research and I had all these diff- 
different kinds of jobs and I'm like okay you know where is this going <laughs> it's yeah. even like my major and then I realized okay this is all coming together so I can manage and try to build an organization so yeah. it sounds like a similar experience yeah and you just you don't really realize and everything that you do, even my experience working at a sushi restaurant, like I learned things from that, that I can now apply in what I'm doing now. So yeah, every piece of right. experience counts. So, I mean, I think sometimes people think, or there's a story of, okay, if you go and you do something like you build an organization or you become an entrepreneur, um, uh, there is sometimes the idea that formal education maybe isn't that important or, um, you know, you could have done it without the education. So what you did mention a few things you learned from your degrees. What, what, how did that sort of play a role, your education? Um, that's a good question. I think my undergraduate degree connected me with a group of like-minded people and that was one of the most important things was finding my tribe and finding a group of people that i really could get on with and really connect with over the passion of art mm -hmm. um i don't want to speak ill of my education in any way and i would yeah. never want to deter anybody from formal education uh, my undergraduate degree was in its second year um, my particular focus that was a new program it was its second year and so I didn't get as much out of it as mm. I think that I wanted to but I don't think that was a fault of the education necessarily I think the level of dedication that you bring to anything you do you will get out of something as much as you put into it and during mm. my undergraduate degree I didn't put very much into it and so <laughs> I didn't get very much out of it so it makes sense right um but then in my master's degree my master's degree was like I really focused more than I've ever focused in my whole life. And I felt very passionate yeah. about what I was doing. And I had a teacher who also believed in me, gave me those little moments of encouragement. Um, and that was the first time I felt like so confident about what I was doing. And so it really taught me that if I put all of my eggs into one basket and I focus intently on one thing that I can accomplish right. anything. Wow. So I think my MA really helped me with my organizational skills as well. When you're writing a master's thesis, you have to be extremely organized. Right. Um, and so it taught me to be organized, to really be on top of things. And yeah, I don't, I think that outside of formal education, my education post, post-secondary has been the most useful to me. And the reason for that is I just feel like I am now self-motivated and being self-motivated right. in your formal education or outside of your formal education is the most vital factor to success because you have yeah. to continually seek out, you have to create a regimen, you have to make sure that you're pushing yourself. And I always, I don't want to blame school, but I think school creates a structure in your life. And once you leave school, oh, yeah. you don't continue that structure. Right things are going to fall apart pretty quickly. Um, and so I wish in some ways that my, I don't know, I, I, I guess it's just something that you have to learn on your own that I don't think school can necessarily teach you to be a self-starter. It's just something you right. kind of have to figure out on your own. And once I figured that out in my master's degree, I was much more successful and I really enjoyed the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I often recommend to my students, like, don't just focus on your academics. You got to go out and like do stuff. 
like volunteer, get a part-time job, cultivate other parts of yourself because this will help you, <clears throat> pardon me, when you graduate. So yeah, yeah good point. Absolutely. And I, I was sort of wondering, do you think, you mentioned you took a year off between degrees. Do you think that also kind of helped you to focus? Because that's all similar to what I did. I went to China for a year between my master's degree to learn Chinese. And I, I didn't even know I was going to do a master's degree. But while I was in China, I, f I felt like, okay, I'd like to go back to school and learn more, more about this. Because I had studied... Um, Asian history and Chinese politics in my undergrad and I realized okay I need to learn Chinese so I can access some more <laughs> information and then when I went to China I was like wow this is really not what I read about in the books this is this is a very different version of China and then I started to become curious about it and thought I want to go back and study more about China but now with this knowledge of actually having lived there and stuff and so I, I I find sometimes people want to just rush it from one degree to the next and not really go out and explore things because maybe this is what someone told them they're supposed to do and I find that time in between school like I mean you or I might go back to school again um is really helpful for young people to clarify who they are and and what they want did you find that as well yeah absolutely i mean in my undergraduate degree i had the option to do a thesis or i could just continue just doing coursework and i just didn't feel passionate or connected to anything so i just continued to do coursework and so after my undergraduate degree i took a year off um i sort of in all honesty, I kind of just like messed around, hung, a lot, hung out with my friends a lot, partied a lot, and just sort of like entered this process of self-exploration before I did my master's. And so that when I went into my master's, I felt like I had some life experience. I had perspectives. I had my own ideas that were important to me now. So when I went into my master's, you know, my thesis was on like sustainability. And that was something that after taking a little bit of time away, from my education, I was able to really recognize what was important to me. Um, yeah, I, I think it's really important to just take that time away and get that real life experience because it can create yeah. like real clarity in your own life and it can help you in your education as well if you want to further focus. I thought I wanted to do undergrad, master's, PhD all in yeah. a row, but right. I, I don't know maybe that works for some people as well maybe that is you know if you feel really passionate about a particular subject matter and you found it that's great but i right. think for a lot of us especially when you're in your early 20s like you really just don't know what you're passionate about yet so right yeah so you mentioned um you did all these different jobs you had these different experiences at school and then once you started to do to to you did that one exhibition and then you really started to get passionate about that and eventually build it into an organization. Now, reflecting back, if somebody were to come to you and say, hey, you know, I'm really thinking of starting my own nonprofit, what skills or knowledge would you say, okay, you know, that's great, but what do you think that person might need to have to be able to succeed? I mean, 
That's a good There's question. no formula, but maybe <laughs> you intuitively have noticed some things about yourself or others. I think first and foremost, what's in my own eyes, everybody has their own definition of success, but what has made me successful in my own eyes is that I have passion, determination, and resilience. I think the key is feeling connected enough to what you're building to get you through your darkest days. I know that a lot of people say, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. That might be true for some people, but I think for the most part, that's just absolutely not true. There are going to be days when you're doing accounting, you're doing cold calling, you're doing fundraising, whatever it is in a nonprofit, that's not enjoyable. But doing that allows you to fulfill whatever it is that you're passionate about or you feel purpose in. I think the difference between a for-profit environment and a nonprofit environment is often that personal connection that people have with the issue that they're advocating for. For me, it's mental health, homelessness, and addiction. And I feel deeply and passionately connected to those. Um, and so you have to love what you're doing. You have to really feel connected to it. Um, and I don't know that this is true across the entire sector, but predominantly in the nonprofit sector, you'll find that most people who start nonprofits or work in the sector have had some sort of powerful, tragic, or motivating event in their life that has made them realize that the work that they were doing was not aligned with their values. And so they're now seeking to align with their own values. And that's not true across the board, but I think more than anything, recognizing that failure is not the end and that you have to push through failure to get to success. If you constantly have this idea of resilience in your mind that anytime somebody says no, when you ask them for money for your nonprofit or somebody says no to collaborating or somebody gives right. you some sort of critical feedback on what it is that you're doing, mm -hmm. that you take that, you internalize it, you take what's useful, you build on it and you learn that is the key to success. And I think if you have that mentality, whether you're a nonprofit or for-profit, you're going to be right. successful eventually. <laughs> it's not going to happen overnight. And another thing I would say is patience. The yeah. metaphor that I try to push forward is this idea of building like a pyramid. So oh. the first layer that you have to build is the hardest. And, and it, there's so yeah. many pieces to lay the foundation and it doesn't look like a lot of progress right, right. away, but it, is the most important part and getting the foundation down and get having the time and patience to build it is going to help right. you scale and slowly build up and it will get right. easier but you have to be willing to put, put in the time and effort i'm a very impatient person myself and so i kick myself <laughs> you know like all the time about not succeeding fast enough or not growing fast enough but we just have right. to be a little bit more patient you know take your time and don't be so hard on yourself yeah so what, what, where are you at in your pyramid, do you think? I think I'm still building the first layer and it's been about two, we incorporated in May of 2018, which wow, I know, I don't know how that happened, that's but a, it, that's, no, but that's like a big step being yeah. incorporated. Yeah. I incorporated just because I was looking for funding for our first public art project. I never in my life imagined I was going to incorporate a nonprofit. And I, I didn't even think that it was something that I wanted to do. I just sort of intuitively did it. But yeah, even two years, two and a half years into this process, I still feel like I'm building the base. I'm still building the base, but I'm learning and growing. And so just trying to appreciate that. And what, what, what do you think goes into that base? So you mentioned sort of the traits of the 
person who's kind of creating and leading this nonprofit. But mm -hmm. for the nonprofit, what are people, things people would think about putting into that base or maybe things you didn't expect would be in the base? Um, that's a good question. I think probably, I mean, no matter some nonprofits, mine is a slightly less traditional nonprofit in that we do art advocating for mental health, homelessness and addiction. We're not building a shelter, helping people on the front lines. So it's slightly different than a lot of nonprofit models. And so for me, just figuring out exactly how we add value um, has been a very long and arduous process. Um, I think in building that base, it's sort of creating a proof of concept. So is there a need for it? It's very similar to a for-profit business, uh, recognizing what is the target demographic? Is there a need for it? Um, how do people respond to it? And just gaining that critical feedback. I think feedback is probably the most important thing, both from the community that you're trying to serve, as well as the donors or sponsors that you're trying to get funding from. What is the feedback? Do they feel there is a need? Um, and how do you communicate value as a nonprofit as well? That's like the most important thing. What is your pitch? If you were to sell somebody on your idea in two minutes or less, can you do it? Um, and that's taken a long time for me to be able to build that. And I think I'm still working through it, to okay. be honest. Okay, so yeah. it sounds like a lot of marketing. <laughs> a, a, lot of, a lot of the components of marketing, like who is your ideal client market research, which is the kind of, you know, where do we fit? What do people want? Absolutely. The messaging and getting comfortable. I mean, I, I find it hard um, sell, selling. I don't like selling, but I find that the hardest part. Like I, I really enjoy what I do. I know I'm good at it but I find it so hard <laughs> to explain to someone else what I do or even talk about what I, I think it's some sort of ingrained, like being humble kind of. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's a challenge when it's your creation and it's not, you're not work. If you're working for someone else in some way, I find that a little easier because there's less investment. Like if you, if the person doesn't like it or you know you get rejected it's not as high stakes as if it's yeah. your project oh yeah it's I, it's such a terrifying thing to put your heart and soul out there for everybody to criticize and possibly provide feedback on and maybe they don't like it and then you start to have all of, like these internalized fears about putting yourself out there it is really hard um, but it has yeah. also given me a great appreciation for other people who start their own businesses or nonprofits or they put themselves out online. It's really tough putting yourself out there for fear of failure or criticism. But I, I and I would like yeah. to say that you get used to it, but I don't know that you do. <laughs> or at least I haven't yet. I think so. you just maybe get a thicker skin. Yeah. And yeah. build strategies. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think as well, just like build yourself up and recognize that like your value isn't reliant on somebody else's opinion of you. Your value comes from within and everything else is kind of secondary. But I mean, that's an easy thing to say, not as easy of a thing to do. What I know you post a lot about mental health and that's part of the reason um, I started following you and 
I really like to like check your account pretty often. Um, and one thing I think I see a lot of is how to manage the work-life balance. Because if you have your own business or a nonprofit, it's really on your mind all the time. <laughs> and yeah. so, so what, what do you do to, you know, prevent burnout or going crazy? <laughs> I wish I could speak on this as an authoritative person, <laughs> but I am still working through this. And I know like we've messaged before about how easily like I fall into the state of burnout and I'll allow things. And I just wouldn't take days off. When I first started doing the nonprofit, I would wake up at 5 a.m. because that's what all these like successful people tell you to do, right? You got to wake up at 5 a.m. But I was going to bed at like 11 or 12. And so I'd wake oh up like so tired and then I couldn't get through my day. And it's just, I think a work-life balance really comes from listening intuitively to yourself and getting to know yourself and how the things in your environment impact you. Um, I've started now incorporating, I've started scheduling time in my life and my work schedule for myself, um, oh, yeah. and making those things non-negotiable. So for example, one of the things that I do now is on Wednesdays, I don't care who you are, how important the call is. I will not schedule a call on Wednesday because I allow Wednesdays in the middle of the week to take time off if I need it. Sometimes I'll work through a full Wednesday and I'll just be focused on my work, no calls, no emails, none of that stuff, because it gives me a moment in the middle of my week to reflect on how do I feel right now? Do I feel right. like I'm mentally okay? Sometimes I take the full Wednesday off and I really need that time off, but it's just about listening intuitively to yourself. And there are times in your life when work is going to demand more of you. Uh, in spring, right. when I was putting together our overdose awareness campaign at Young and Dundas Square, I was mm -hmm. working, sleeping, and eating. That was it. I wasn't yeah. doing anything else. I wasn't giving myself any time whatsoever. I cut out all my social stuff, which in the middle of a pandemic is not really a big deal, but it was, <laughs> and I felt fine. I really did feel fine. Like I felt super good. I just felt like this is my moment to like, you know, really nail this campaign. Yeah. Um, and I, if I were to go back, I wouldn't change that. But then after that campaign ended, my partner's mom passed away. So all of a sudden work was secondary and personal life right. became primary. And so I think even though I try to maintain this work-life balance, I think life is always going to dictate otherwise. And you just need to be, what's the word? Responsive when those things happen. Because right. there are times where like family is going to take priority over work. There are times when work is going to take priority over family. And then there's those times in between when you have this really good schedule and ritual and everything pants out. But sometimes right. life happens and that's sort of impossible. But the more you can make time for yourself, the better you're going to be at work, the more focused you're going to be at work and the better you're able to show up for the people in your life. At least that's what I found. Right. Yeah, that's that's also what I find. That's also what I tell my students, because I feel like uh, going from high school to university and then going to grad school. I mean, there is a structure and a schedule, but there also isn't. You know, yeah. if you had a nine to five job, Monday to Friday, you the weekend, you don't think about work. But if you're in school, you always, oh, man, I got to do this assignment. Oh, geez, you know, this test is coming up. And so that's also, I recommend to them, pick a day each week and just do nothing. Oh, just absolutely. Just schedule to do nothing. And 
myself, I also find that. So Monday I call Lisa day and same thing. Well, I don't do any work. I'm just like, I basically just schedule time to do nothing. I, I have no, I can do whatever I want. If I want to sleep in fine. If I want to sit in my pajamas and, you know, binge watch eight hours of Netflix. Cool. It's just <laughs> guilt free. I love that. Hanging out with myself. Yeah. And I, and I found actually, um, that helps a lot with the knowing intuitively what you need in those times of busyness yeah. because I spend time with myself once a week so that when I get busy, I kind of can recognize better a feeling. Okay. What is this feeling trying to tell me? Do I yeah. need to take a little break in the afternoon today? You know, am I anxious? Oh, it's okay. It makes sense. I'm anxious. I'm going to do a podcast with Megan and I always get a little anxious before a podcast. So that's what this feeling is. <laughs> So I yeah. think that really helps. That's a really valuable point. Yeah, I think we, we get so distracted in our lives. And especially before the pandemic, it was like Monday to Friday, you're working. And then in the evenings, you're going out and seeing friends. And on the weekend, right. you're seeing family. And your time is just so filled with so many things. You're scrolling on your phone. You're just, you're never allowing yourself a moment to just be still and check in with yourself and go, how am I doing? You know, so the next time yeah. like anxiety comes on, you're like, okay, I anticipated this feeling because I'm deeply connected with myself. And now I can maybe do things to soothe me and maybe make that better before it turns into like a full breakdown or panic attack. It's just preventative. Oh, yeah. 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 I used to burn out at the end of every term because I would just be like working, 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 working. Oh, the assignments are coming in. And then I would be burnt out for like a month. Yeah. And then, and it, yeah, it would totally. Start which works when I wasn't busy between, like, especially in the summer, it would be less busy. But then as my business grew, I'm actually busier all times of the year. So I don't have time to take a month off and recover. Yeah. So it becomes more and more important. Yeah. I also feel like when you burn out and you still try to work, for example, oh, yeah. you're less focused. And so you actually get less done, even though you might be putting in more hours. But when you give yourself right. rest and you're fully rested, you're clear, you're focused for eight hours, you can get so much more done in those eight yeah. hours than if you're tired and lethargic and just pushing yourself too hard. Yeah. So yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah. I actually just had a conversation. I had a former student who's sick and she's trying to do work. And I said, buddy, just take a rest. <laughs> Surely they will give you a sick day. Like, otherwise you're going to be sick for two weeks instead of two days. Yeah. And I think absolutely. that's something people, I mean, this is something I struggle with, but now I just, I'm like, can't okay, sick. Sorry guys, got to move appointments. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. I know, okay, I'll be back in two days instead of two weeks. Yeah. And or then you make mistakes in those two weeks. If you're burnt out, you're going to make mistakes and then it's going to affect your self-esteem and and then you have to redo cycle. it, which lengthens the amount of work you have to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that you like, you learn over time. I think it's hard to, it's hard to consistently do it. Like even me now, like I know it and I can say it, but every once in a while yeah. I'll allow it to just like, you know, Oh yeah. continue on and not take a break, but yeah, a work in progress. So you seem like a pretty confident young woman. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what, 
what what has helped you to build that or what what would you tell maybe another way to think about this is what would you tell your 20 year old self just who is just figuring things out like what what would you tell her to help her to feel reassured or to build some some confidence yeah i I would say, I would say I'm fairly confident now, but I think that that comes from just having a sense of value within myself and just feeling like I have value. And that is a long process for a lot of people, depending on where you start as well. If you grow up in an environment where people tell you that you're not valuable or whatever, you internalize those feelings, it can really continue throughout your entire life. Um, I feel like right. I might just be repeating myself, but I think that the answer always lies within. And so a lot of chaos that occurred in my life in my late teens and early twenties was just due to not knowing myself. Um, and I didn't spend any time with myself. I purposely did that. I filled up my space with, like I said, friends, partying, work, all kinds of different things. And so I didn't know who I was or who I wanted to be. And I think like confidence really comes from self-love like just taking time to just really appreciate yourself I think we often let negative thought patterns repeat themselves and when I started meditating the first thing I realized the first time I recognized that I had had a thought like you're such an idiot to myself the wow. first time I was aware of that thought I was like what use is that? Like, why am I doing this? And yet it's just like, it just repeats in your mind and you're not totally aware of it. Um, and then over time, I still struggle with this sometimes, especially if my depression pulls me back into that negative thought pattern. But over time, you start to just value yourself. And the more you value yourself, the more confidence you're going to have. And so now if somebody wants to work with me, but they talk down to me, they belittle me, they make me feel less than, I'm very happy and confident to say, no, thank you. This isn't for me. Whereas me, maybe five to 10 years ago would have gone, oh, okay, I'll just go along with her. I'll make up excuses right. for the behavior. Right. Whereas now I have this confidence. It's just a sense of self-worth, I think. Um, ha having enough belief in yourself, your abilities and your value as an individual to just feel confident and also recognizing that not everybody needs to like you. Right. Now, that's something that I've struggled with throughout my life. And that just because somebody doesn't like you, you come from two different walks of life. That's okay. Maybe, you know what I mean? I just, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I think just getting to know yourself is the real key to confidence. And I guess accept yourself, right? Yeah. You can know yourself, but then try, keep trying to change these things about yourself that you think are not good or don't fit in. Yeah. Yeah. And not allowing opinions of other people to dictate your own self-worth or value. Um, that's right. also a tough one <laughs> to get over, but yeah, I think that's so the did key. You, so, so did meditation help you with that? And oh yeah. what else did you kind of use other than meditation? So on this journey of self-discovery, it really started for me with meditation. I think I've been meditating now on and off for about like eight years or something. Um, wow. Meditation was the first step for me to just sort of become conscious of my thoughts. 
after my brother passed away, the seven months after he passed away, I basically cyclically just thought about the last week of his life, the funeral, the oh, week afterwards. Yeah. And I like played that over and over in my mind. Wow. So I was having panic attacks at work and all of these things started happening in my life. And then I yeah. started meditating more in those moments. And I started realizing that I was like, my mind just went to this place without my consent really. And so I started thinking yeah. about these negative things over and over again. And once I started meditating, I became conscious of my thoughts. And if you want to change your thoughts, you first have to become conscious of them. Right. You have to recognize what that internal dialogue is. So that's where meditation really helped. The next thing I've, I've also been doing since I was a kid is just journaling, just writing dear diary and just journaling. Right. Cause I think your mind is such a chaotic place. Sometimes, you know, you're thinking about your day, you're worrying about this thing, you're worrying about that thing. And when you get to put it on paper, it takes away a lot of that stress and anxiety and you get to just see things very objectively. So maybe you write down, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, maybe I did a really bad job at this or whatever it might be. But when you put yeah. it on paper and you see it objectively, yeah. it changes the narrative. Right. Um, one of the things that I do that's been more useful me to me than anything else is talking to yourself in the third person. Oh my God, I do that all the time. Yes. <laughs> and, and I say nice things. I'm like, it's okay, sweetie. Yeah. It's okay. It wasn't that bad. Like, as if I had like a little, I call her baby Lisa. Sometimes baby Lisa needs a little comfort. I love that. Yeah, it's like talking to your inner child almost. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because like anytime somebody comes to me with their problems and I'm like, oh, I'm just the worst and I, I'm so stuck on this and I'm such a failure. I think, what would I say to this person? And yeah. oftentimes the things I would say to them are the things I need to be saying to myself, but that's not often the case. But when you talk to yourself in third person, you almost trick yourself yeah. into just being kind and supportive to yourself like you would to other people. Right. Um, that's a really good trick as well. And also, I mean, exercise, um, yes. eating eating well, um, moving and just engaging sleep, in some sort of sleep. sleep. Yeah. Sleep really affects my mood. And, and I think a 100%. lot of people and they don't notice it, especially if they get a prolonged period of not enough sleep because your brain will adjust. So you think you're not really that tired, but yeah. there's stuff in the background going on like you're maybe forgetting stuff or the negative I find I'll get more negative voices or more easily more easily emotionally triggered just like if you think of a kid who doesn't have a nap you can always tell when a little kid needs a nap because everything's like ah! you know? workplaces should have nap spaces for sure I think sleep is one of the most important things absolutely and I yeah. think like when you haven't had sleep or when you've had enough sleep, that's when you really notice right. the difference and the impact it has in your life. So I'm a, I'm a major advocate for if some, if you feel stuck in your life in any which way you just feel like negative, try something different. You have to change your environment to see how the things you're doing are impacting you. And so if, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep, try sleeping way more. Maybe that's not the answer. Maybe you feel the same and you just run better on less sleep. That's possible, but you have to be willing to experiment with your life to find that out. Yeah. So um, I kind of want to, before we're finished up here, I want to circle back to um, what inspired you or why you're so focused on, um, I think it's mental health addiction and homelessness. What what, what's the story behind that? 
So I think that those three things are really closely related. Um, and they all is, they're all social issues. And unfortunately that we're seeing in the pandemic right now, they are all coming to the forefront, even though they've been issues for a very long time. So right. you're seeing encampments popping up in parks. We're seeing rising numbers of mental health. Um, and there has right. been a spike in the number of overdoses because people are isolating and a whole slew of different factors. Right. Um, but these are the three things that are really impacting us right now. Um, and I think that the onus often is put on the individual, but I think right. that there is a larger economic conversation that we need to be having that we often don't. And it, the focus on these particular subjects comes from a personal place for me. I have struggled with my own mental health and addiction since I was 15. So these issues are important to me from a personal perspective. Um, but after my brother passed away, um, he struggled with addiction for years, I would say almost a decade. Um, wow. And then after he passed, I realized that like we had never really spoken about his mental health. That was not something that mm -hmm. I spoke about. It's not something I knew to speak about. Um, but I think he probably dealt with a lot of the same issues and food disorder that I deal with, but we had never spoken openly about it. Around mental health and addiction, difficult are extremely important because feeling like you have to hide your addiction or your mental right. health struggles is what leads to overdose suicide and other mm -hmm. harmful behaviors. Um, and so I, other than, yeah, it's, and it's, it's so unfortunate because so many of us struggle, but because, right. you know, I might be struggling, you might be struggling, but because there's a stigma, we're like not connecting and finding support in one another because we're mm -hmm. afraid to speak up for fear of judgment although we're both struggling with the same issues. Right. Um, and yeah, I think that they're just really important issues. They're unfortunately the biggest social issues of our time, um, other than, I mean, environmentalism. Well, time. I feel yeah. like if you look back in history, these are, these are issues of all time. I actually have a PhD student that's writing a paper on the housing crisis, like her dissertations going to be on the housing crisis in mm -hmm. Toronto, specifically for black and indigenous women facing violence. And as part of the process of starting, you know, the proposal and doing research, we had a conversation about, you know, well, when did this start? You know, when did this become an issue? Because just we, we should choose a date. You know, we can't look at all the data of all human history right. but we just we just decided on like 1950 1916 Canada because that's really when they started a national housing policy and different programs like that but if you think about it if you look even back because it's Lent and I'm Christian so I, I was just reading the Old Testament as part of Lent and if you look back even to that text there's homelessness. I mean, part of the story of the Israelites is they're homeless, right? In the beginning. So this uh, human need for a home, for stability, for security, goes back to our very beginnings. Yeah. And when you don't have this, it affects you tremendously as a person and as a community. And if you look at... Um, 
I mean, I think what, what, by putting these three things together and focusing on these three things, I think when I'm listening to you, what it brings to light for me is just the need for community. And that when we try to deal with these things in isolation as human beings, it hurt, it harms us. But we live in a culture, especially in, in North America and the Western world, where we're supposed to all be self-reliant individuals. But that's not really how it works, you know, especially in, in big, well, anywhere, really. You know, even the process of having a home in modern society, you can't have a home with other people. Even if I was a self-reliant person, wealthy, bought my own home, I can't build that home. Somebody built the home. Somebody put the heat into the home, you know? So we don't acknowledge these things, but a lot of different people are contributing to our home. And I, I think we we forget about that. And I think it's really yeah. important and, and cool that you're, you're bringing this up in the forefront in a, in a way that people can connect with maybe more emotionally and deeply if it's through art. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we now compared to the time of the Israelites, for example, like we have more resources now than we ever right. have. And so we have the capacity to support the well-being of everybody. And yet that's not right. the way that our society is structured. And so that's one of the things that's so frustrating is that we could create a society in which all of those people's needs are being supported and everybody has a home. The size of the home doesn't really matter, just having right. a home. Um, and then for people who struggle with their mental health, I mean, imagine having psychosis and schizophrenia and being and expected or being expected to work a nine to five Monday to Friday yeah. job. Like what kind of system is that? Like we recognize that mental health is real and yet we're not willing to put in the fail safes to support people who struggle with those issues. So yeah, it's a complicated issue, but I think art has this unique capacity to connect with people beyond just words. It specifically in mental health, it can communicate a feeling. I mean, you could see an abstract piece of art and see it and connect within it a way that nobody else you know does, but it makes you feel a particular emotion. And so it's able to communicate things that we might not be able to easily communicate otherwise. And especially when it comes to deep experiences like homelessness uh, or addiction and what that really feels like for a person. Being able to showcase things that are kind of invisible through art can be a really powerful medium. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And I also think that, I mean, how many people just walk by, especially in big cities, you know, where we see it all the time? And, and you know, we all do this. Who, who's really stopping and talking to someone that's living on the street? Who, who's really listening to their story? I mean, unless that's your job and you're working in an, in an organization. And so what I'm, but if you could put that in some form of art, then, and I go in there and and I see this art, then I'm finally hearing this person's or group of person's story that if I'm walking down the street, it might actually be too painful or too difficult for me to, to take it in. 
And so it's kind of like a bridge where, you know, okay, wow, I'm starting to understand this. And I'm starting, and, and I think something that happens, especially in big cities, we get desensitized and an entire yeah. group of the population is dehumanized. And, and I think it's part of a process of, in a way, self-protection, because if you're very empathetic, it'd be very, it's very painful to, to realize that this is going on and you feel helpless. Like even yeah. if you want to help, you can't house all these people. So, so I, I think it's, it's really important what you're doing because it's, it's communicating a reality in a way that maybe people can digest and then yeah. maybe can start doing small things like making a donation to, to start to change things. I mean, I think big structural change has to happen, but, and that's why people feel helpless. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's but big. it's a step. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what, just to close here, this was a long interview. There was a lot of <laughs> good things to talk about. Um, so I like books, obviously. I like writing and reading and stuff. So I always ask guests, um, what books, you know, or book would you recommend to someone who's interested in what you do um, or, you know, starting a nonprofit or, or whatever? So do you have any recommendations? I do. Um, but for me, the key to success in no matter what it is that you do is the mindset. So I'm a big mindset. I'm going to call it self-help book type person. <laughs> um, I think one of my favorite books, it's called Grit and it's by Angela okay. Duckworth. And it essentially talks about, I mean, grit is I mean, in definition is staying power. It's this idea that when you fall down, that you're going to get back up and that's what right. it is. And so throughout this book, she interviews billionaire CEOs, you know, successful NFL football coaches, all types of different people in walks of life. Um, and she basically tries to find the underlying factor that makes people successful and allows huh. them to have grit. Um, mm. It is such a good book. It's one of my favorite books, um, but the one, it just, it made me feel really empowered. It made me feel like, yeah, absolutely. I could be working on my grit. And the interesting thing that she talks about is that it's not something you're just born with. It's right. something any of us can cultivate. We can all right. cultivate a mindset of grit and staying power and resilience. And I think specifically in times of COVID that that's a really important message. Um, yeah, I like a lot of those types of books. I also recently just read Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is amazing. It's amazing. It basically, he started a blog, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, talking about different habits, different ways to make habits stick. Because I think we all struggle with that. Maybe you want to eat better, you want to exercise, you want to start a nonprofit, whatever it is that you want to do, you have to have good habits. But actually starting those habits is a totally different story. Right. So he basically started... What's that? Oh, I said, right. And apparently yeah, it yeah. takes at least 60 days to 60 to 120 days or something to establish a new habit, 
Which is why people often quit halfway through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, so in this book, he just gives all of the practical advice he's been sending out to his newsletter followers for the past 10 years. And it's all in one place. It's got a lot of great anecdotes, realistic stories, uh, success stories. And he basically just tells you, do little things at a time. Attach one habit oh. to another habit so that you're not, you know, thinking to do something out of nowhere when you don't have that habit. If you've ever moved something in your kitchen or your home into a different place, you <laughs> for like a whole week will go back to that same place to get the kettle and you'll stop and you'll go, right, I moved it. So it takes time. And so you can see in a really practical way how powerful it can be to attach a new habit or something to another habit, doing little bits at a time. So I really enjoy those types of books. So I think probably grit and atomic habits are my two favorites okay great well we'll put those in the link usually so we write up a blog post and we put the the uh book links there for everyone be great so it was a real pleasure actually talking to you and meeting you and i learned a lot and uh yeah so thanks so much for joining us today thank you appreciate it you're welcome and so if anyone wants to find out more about Megan, you can look up her nonprofit's website. It's www.2020arts.com, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we hope that you will stay tuned for the writing prompt and short meditation after this. breathing meditation, you will focus on your breath. This will calm your mind and relax your body. There is no right or wrong way to meditate. Whatever you experience during breathing meditation is right for you. Don't try to make anything happen, just observe. Begin by finding a comfortable position, but one in which you will not fall asleep. Sitting on the floor with your legs crossed is a good position to try. Close your eyes or focus on one spot in the room. Roll your shoulders slowly forward and then slowly back. Lean your head from side to side, lowering your left ear towards your left shoulder and then your right ear toward your right shoulder. Relax your muscles. Your body will continue to relax as you meditate. Observe your breathing. Notice how your breath flows in and out. Make no effort to change your breathing in any way. Simply notice how your body breathes. Your body knows how much air it needs. Sit quietly, seeing in your mind's eye your breath flowing gently in and out of your body. When your attention wanders, as it will, just focus back again on your breathing. Notice any stray thoughts, but don't dwell on them. Simply let the thoughts pass. See how your breath continues to flow, deeply, calmly. Notice the stages of a complete breath. From the in-breath, to the pause that follows, the exhale, and the pause before taking another breath. 
See the slight breaks between each breath. Feel the air entering through your nose. Picture the breath flowing through the cavities in your sinuses and then down to your lungs. As thoughts intrude, allow them to pass and return your attention to your breathing. See the air inside your body after you inhale, filling your body gently. Notice how the space inside your lungs becomes smaller after you exhale and the air leaves your body. Feel your chest and stomach gently rise and fall with each breath. Now as you inhale, count silently. One. As you exhale, count. One. Wait for the next breath and count again. One. Exhale. One. Inhale. One. Exhale. One. Continue to count each inhalation exhalation as one. Notice how your body feels. See how calm and gentle your breathing is and how relaxed your body feels. Now it is time to gently reawaken your body and mind. Keeping your eyes closed, notice the sounds around you, feel the floor beneath you, feel the clothes against your body, wiggle your fingers and toes, shrug your shoulders, open your eyes and remain sitting for a few moments longer Straighten out your legs and stretch your arms and legs gently. Sit for a few moments more, enjoying how relaxed you feel and experiencing your body reawaken and your mind returning to its usual level of alertness. Slowly return to standing position and continue with the rest of your day feeling re-energized. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast with Megan Key about starting your own nonprofit. I was really grateful to connect with Megan and have such an authentic and meaningful conversation. Now, unlike Megan, I'm not much of an artist, but I do find that drawing, even in a childish way, helps me to organize my thoughts and kind of stay inspired and motivated. And a lot of what Megan talked about was about mindset. So I wanna share with you something that I do um, usually at the end of each term. So every four months or every six months, um, I like to draw a picture of kind of sort of the things I'm hoping to achieve and then I put it up on my bulletin board to help me to stay inspired. Now this idea comes from a YouTube video called Drawing Your Future and I will put the link to that video in the little description box so if anyone wants to check that out they can. And in that activity basically what you do is you draw where you are now and you could draw stick figures and then you draw where you want to be. And then afterwards, there's a little bit of a writing exercise.
to help you to envision your future. So I don't have the picture of drawing where I am, but this is my most recent picture of drawing where I would like to be. So there's a few things, um, growing my business. This is the logo of my business. Family is important to me. Um, eventually having a home, writing a book, practicing my Chinese, growing and you know once we get out of covid hopefully travel i haven't seen my parents for a while so very childish drawing some people might be better artists but i find that this really helps with visualization and getting some of those more complex ideas out of your head and onto paper in an organized way and then you know what i like to do is i like to also put words on the page right so next to the um orchid i put i can't even read these words growing serene peaceful so this kind of fits into my recent practice of morning reading and reflective writing so adding some words to your drawing helps a lot too okay so if you want to try this out what you could do is just set a timer for 10 minutes um, and draw whatever you're thinking about in your mind of what you would like your ideal future to be. And then after you have done that, you've completed your drawing, you can draw it in black and white and then color it in. I find the color makes it a little bit more um, inspiring. And then what I would suggest you do, because I think, of course, I'm a big fan of reflective writing and so I think after that step a secondary step would be to sit down and again set a timer for yourself maybe longer maybe 15 minutes and write down some ideas about how you plan to achieve those goals or breaking those goals down into smaller tasks or even if you want, you could write a whole paragraph of what you kind of see in the near future. So to make this more manageable, you could pick a time frame. So usually what I do is I do this at the beginning of the year. And then, as I said, I might do it every quarter, every four months, every six months. And so I have kind of a goal within a year. This is my idea within um, six months. This is my idea. So having that um, time frame can help with the visioning and kind of like planning. So just to repeat, because I've kind of jumped <laughs> all over the place a little bit. Um, so what I would do is set a timer for 15 minutes, have something in mind. So you have this picture, you know, put it in front of you and think about what can you do in the next six months to work toward some of these things you want to achieve. So for example, you know, um, this kind of like growing serenity thing, I'll go back to it. So I can think about what are some things in six months I can do to try to achieve this. And something I've been doing lately for Lent is turning off my phone at 9 p.m. and not turning it on again until 12 noon. And instead spending that time to read, to reflect, to do some planning for my business 
that kind of thing. So write down some smaller goals that you can work on within a specific time frame and give yourself 15 minutes for that. After that, there are definitely a lot of other steps you can take to try to, or not try to, actually achieve these goals. But for today, I suggest draw yourself a picture of your future, more of a long range picture, maybe in five years, and then sit down with your picture in front of you, set a timer for 15 minutes, and write out some things you can do to work on achieving that vision that you want for your life. Thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast or watching one of our videos on YouTube. We have a small audience at the moment, um, but we really appreciate you. And we'd love to hear from you the kinds of things you're worrying about, the kinds of help or advice you would like. You can check us out on our website, which I will put in the description, www.fow.ca. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at FAO underscore academic writing. You can also sign up for our free monthly newsletter. I will put the link in the description. And of course, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can tune into our podcast. You can find it on our website. Um, you can also maybe find it on Spotify, but we do have a page on the website, which is fow.ca slash podcast. And if you're listening to the podcast, you can check out our YouTube page and watch the video, especially if you want to try to do a drawing, you might want to see the video. Thank you so much for tuning in and we look forward to helping you reach your full potential on the page and a life.